zooming from overt imperialist military propaganda to a homosexually charged action hootenanny, Top Gun is a nonstop thrill ride. Joining me to get a lock on what Tom Cruise's 1986 blockbuster means today are senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Brandon Valeriano. Hello. And assistant professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and writer of the Substack newsletter Systematic Hatreds, Paul Musgrave. Great to be here. This film, there's a little bit of a, a flack that it gets or a simultaneous celebration, depending on how you want to interpret it, for its depiction of military prowess aerial combat maneuvering and this unabashed glamorization of war tactics and what war is supposed to mean. So is this just a fun action flick? Because it is fun. It's 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 a it's a romp, it's a good time, but is it just that or is there some deeper darker underbelly to what this film is doing whether it intends it or not? Yeah, that's a tough question, and that's something that Paul and I can dive into very deeply. Because the issue is, for some people, they believe that pop culture predicts the future. And you can gain some sort of intelligence uh, from these uh, objects of pop culture, these artifacts. Uh, I I have the view that Top Gun is just a fun sports movie. uh, And that the the sort of jingoistic military overtones are built into it, but they're not really primarily the main motivation. And that comes out in the sequel too, that it's not really about who the enemy is. It's more about the nature of competition and leadership, which is what fed directly into the explosion in military recruitment after the the first movie and probably after the second. So when I think about Top Gun, I do think about this duality between it is first and foremost a piece of entertainment, and it's also a really interesting instance of the 1980s, what do we want to call it, kind of the re-celebration of the military, uh, kind of the spirit of Reaganism, the spirit of Cap Weinberger, recapitalizing the U.S. military. And I was just looking at the script here, and there's a moment early on in the film, in the text itself, where they justify why Top Gun exists. Uh, So Top Gun in the movie is supposed to be a redemption story. The actual school is there to teach people the fundamentals of dogfighting, of aerial combat maneuvering. And that's a redemption story to get over that Vietnam era uh, loss of proficiency. And people who are aviation geeks know this debate about guns versus missiles. But in the film, they take a big step and they say Vietnam was bad and we're going to recover that. And actually, I think that a lot of in the movie... 40 years on, when we've all watched this movie on TBS a million times in the 90s, or it's become part of pop culture um, through you know being available on streaming and everything, uh, at the time, this was actually taking a really hard side. Uh, you know, most films in the 80s that dealt with the military in the shadow of Vietnam did so in a really different way. This is not Rambo. Uh, this is certainly not the second Rambo movie. Um, you know, things in which Vietnam was a traumatic experience. This is a you know, Vietnam was a technical experience that we're going to get over. We're going to redeem this. So is this entertainment or is this something more? And I think that from my perspective, a lot of what we think about world politics, uh, because most of us day to day do not directly interface with world politics in a way that we'd understand. And so when it's presented to us, it comes to us in the news uh, or it comes to us in entertainment. And 
Those things are not separate. They're mixed together. We blend them together in our minds. And a film like Top Gun actually will reconceptualize how you see the U.S. military as opposed to its kind of this drug-riddled organization that lost a war to its now a series of highly intense professionals who are learning from them, their mistakes and they're going to go on. And like in a way, a movie from the mid-70s about the U.S. military feels way more foreign to us than Top Gun because Top Gun actually represents what the American military to a large extent now is professional, lessons learned, all of that. But also Top Gun is showing you the very best side of that, right? Like Maverick and Iceman are never going to be the subject of an investigation for misusing federal funds or you know doing something way worse as we've seen with the Navy SEALs. So it's both entertainment and it's also this way of looking at the world and changing how you see the world. And I think that the Vietnam era uh, reconceptualization of the U.S. military, the post-Vietnam reconceptualization of the U.S. military is actually a really big part of it. And I think it's something that the film was intentionally trying to get at. If only because for dramatic purposes, you want a movie about cool, sexy, awesome Tom Cruise, not, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, drug addict, you know, all that stuff. Um, but this is also, it's still a big change, right? This is not The Last Deer Hunter. This is not any of these things. Um, and I think that that tracks both with where the U.S. military was going and also with how the Reagan administration and related elements of society wanted to portray the U.S. military. That, that's a great point, too. And we have to remember the milieu of the time, right? This comes between uh, Rambo 2, which is in Afghanistan, and it's kind of this revisiting uh, Vietnam and how the Russians are failing just as much as we are. Uh, and then after this movie came Lethal Weapon, which you know goes to Paul's point of this sort of the PTSD, the failures of Vietnam. And then Top Gun is something completely and utterly different. And it represents a change in recovery during the Reagan era of what it means to be an American and what it means to fight. What do we make of the choice to sort of make the antagonists then this sort of pseudo like faceless antagonist? Like I know that we talk about – I think you see red stars on their helmets and on the jets that they're flying at one point. But they do make a conscious effort never to name the enemy in and of itself, in the original at least. Uh, I think MiGs is the only specification that we get. So what are we supposed to take away from that? Would it have been obvious to an audience then and like – I just wondered, like, why not just come out and specify it if it in that period there was a sense of who the enemy was and afterward? This is my favorite part of the movie in some ways. I mean, besides the beach volleyball scene, obviously. Um, but uh, the idea that they don't uh, denote an enemy in this movie and the next one, not really that as a spoiler, is a deliberate choice. And uh, I run a lot of experiments. I do a lot of work. And we do not put a specific enemy or a specific territory in our workings because we don't want people to bring their baggage to the study. And I think that's something that they deliberately chose to do here. They don't want people to bring their baggage to this movie. But people choose to do that anyway because you can find volumes of articles that the enemy is China or it's Russia or it's Iran and you can see the same thing with the second movie where it's like obviously this movie is about Russia when nothing really that doesn't match at all 
if you really wanted to merge this to a historical incident, it's really Libya and freedom navigation, I think, in 1981, which is not really an exciting enemy for a major blockbuster. So there is a deliberate choice to not bring people's baggage into the of the international conflict situation to this movie. But also the reality of the movie isn't that exciting. Yeah, I, I've actually always just assumed that this was the Gulf of Sidra incident. Um, you know, even before we get to the question of who are they really, um, we, it's not 1971. This is not the middle of the uh, you know Indian or the Pakistani civil war. Why the hell is the Enterprise shooting down anybody over the Indian Ocean? Um, you know, I, like literally, it actually doesn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, I've always just assumed that like this is actually an error in the captions, and that actually for some reason the Enterprise is in the Mediterranean. Um, and uh, you know, shooting down the MiGs is of course in itself a post-Vietnam. Uh, you know, uh, uh, celebration because that was the whole problem that pre-Top Gun, the actual Top Gun, the fighter uh, school, uh, the Navy had a problem doing. Um, and in a sense, it's a really idealized combat. Um, you've got these knights of the air taking off and rescuing each other. It's extremely chivalrous, almost single combat. Um, you know, this is not a Tom Clancy novel. Like the technical details are almost irrelevant. Um, I was learning the other day that the reason why you could do that. Uh, dogfighting trick that the MiGs pull where they have two blips that look like one is because actually U.S. radar at the time couldn't tell the difference. So this is like a serious thing, but they don't explain that, right? This is all about values. This is all about valor. This is really all about Tom Cruise learning to be a team player. Um, and the combat is almost secondary, right? Like the enemy is seriously underpowered. Um, the Soviets, and it is supposed to be Soviets, but again, what the hell they're doing there? Like, why would the Indians invite them? Why would they be doing all this? Two MiGs don't pose a threat to the carrier strike group. I'm sorry. Um, you know, put some bears up there. <laughs> Maybe that would be a problem. Uh, but like, basically, this is just a couple of guys in you know the world's most effective naval interceptor whacking some baby seals. Um, it's not actually a great challenge because the whole challenge is actually about what's going on inside Tom Cruise. But the stakes feel immense. Um, and that's largely because we've come to identify with these characters. And this is one of the ways that the film gets away from the purpose of the military establishment and invites us to identify with the individual characters, which is the way to make this the most sympathetic possible thing. Um, but, you know, Brandon, you know, you know, guys in the military a lot more than I do. But my sense is that even if they have a very good sense of who the red team is, they are always just thinking about defeating the adversary. Um, and, you know, they're all bogeys out there. They're all going, you're not psychoanalyzing these guys. Um, you're fighting MiGs, and they could be Soviet pilots, it could be Vietnamese pilots, it could be you know, Chinese pilots, but they're still MiGs, um, and you're still going to fight them. And so it's not necessarily the specifics that's important to the story of the audience. It's understanding that the brave Americans have gone off and they have, you know, <laughs> for some reason, in an F-14 designed around a missile that was supposed to be able to take things out at like 40 miles, they are closing in and, you know, doing it with guns. Uh, yeah, and... Uh... The second movie. Oh, my God. Well, we're not going to go there. Um, but it, I think it's an interesting reflection of reality in many ways, too, because the PTSD of it all, the the bugging out of it all. It's, you know, the, the reality is most people who fight in combat never fire their weapons. Most people who fight in combat don't really do anything and shiver uh, in the face of battle. And you see that quite often here. 
Which is why this kind of conception of this as not really a war movie, but more of a sports movie and overcoming a faceless adversary is more important because, and I've done this, said this many times and I've gotten in fights with people in the DOD over this, that we need to stop lionizing uh, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, because our next war isn't going to be a war we anticipate. It's going to be in Afghanistan. It's going to be a Ukraine. It's going to be something where a third party drags us in. And every time we try and game out this future near competitive war with uh, China or Russia, it, reality doesn't work like that. And that's something that's so interesting about this movie and how it presents that. Yeah, I actually just want to jump in on that for a second. Ian. If this is a sports movie, then the whole thing with Cougar at the beginning, who uh, kind of chokes, um, the problem is that he's got the yips. Um Right. Like this is just a sports movie. He's got the yips and Tom Cruise is the young buck who gets the chance to, you know, make a make a move up. And, um, you know, looking at it like that, because um, the only thing that it really, I think, productively says about the military establishment is, uh, you know, frankly, um, bringing in a civilian outside expert with a doctorate who can actually analyze your tactics um, and who happens to be a woman and is smarter than you about this thing might actually be a good idea more often than not. Oh, I would love to dive into the gender of it all. And uh, I'll, I'll look up the person's name, but um, uh, Kelly McGinnis is based off a real person. And uh, this is how our world really works. So there are people with expertise that know things that uh, the pilots don't know. And, and getting back to the cougar of it all, th that's a great point. I love that. And that he specifically says, I have a child I have not met. And um, that's something we've been confronting for the last 10, 15 years in the military, particularly as we have people who are going for their third and fourth combat tours. And um, in some ways, people have these grand aspirations for professional military education, all the institutions of universities that the militaries run as like training uh, features and top gun schools. And, you know, my best friend works at basically the land top gun school, but it's not like that. They don't really breed in competition. Uh, some do, but not all programs breed in competition and ranking. In some ways, these programs are for people to recover after combat and to get together with their family after being away for so long. So that aspect of Cougar's failure is a really interesting point about trying to create those bonds and those connections to the homeland, because otherwise you can't fight if you don't have those bonds. Yeah, there's an interesting kind of two-sidedness to this entire conversation, because we were talking about what the depiction of what the military was trying to do post-Vietnam and what it became uh, this sort of valorization of war in the wake of what what people took the Vietnam conflict to really be about. But then Top Gun itself in doing that becomes a sports film that is much more about individual people and teamwork and defeating a faceless other in combat rather than really grappling with the realities of what war is. Um which is interesting because we, when you mentioned it being a sports movie and the stakes being so high, I was really struck by that because I it had been years since I'd seen this movie myself and I rewatched it recently. And I was struck by the lack of stakes for the first 
45, 50 minutes or so, I was like, so the stakes of the film up until the point where Maverick is like trying to decide like you want, he wants to figure out who his father is and uh, sort of like really like get his status back within the eyes of his like essentially teammates in the sports metaphor before that the only stakes are i need to win a competition at uh, some sort of school like i just have to win and i was like wait why why is this you start off with cougar and it's really interesting because you're getting this moral conflict about like does he you know make a choice about uh you know pursuing this or does he go back to his family and try to sort of preserve himself. And then we abandon that for 45, 50 minutes. And then we get back to Tom Cruise and it finally comes around. But there is a very wide gap there. And you talked about it, uh, you know, the intentions of the film and what it tried to do for depictions of the military. And Brandon, you also brought up using the film as a recruitment tool. Um, which it very much was a part uh, uh, in doing and, and really drove a massive, massive amount of recruitment uh, after its release. And I actually found a, a quote from Glenn Robert, who was chief of the Department of Defense's Entertainment Media Office. He told Vice um, it, when speaking about what the Department of Defense does in consulting film productions uh, in, you know, script consultations and offering them uh, – sort of uh, things that they can use for the production. He said, I would tell you in my mind, propaganda is untruthfulness because they were asked like, are you really helping to make military propaganda? Uh, We are an arm of public affairs and we do marketing for public affairs, essentially for the Department of Defense, which I think is a great product, by the way. You can say it's product placement if you want. We're doing Nothing different than any civilian privatized company would. We want to put our best foot forward and we want to show our best. We're proud of who we are and what we do. Has the military always viewed itself as a sort of like quasi private producer who's providing a product for the nation? And or instead of like providing the service of national protection? And if so, when did that change? And how do you take that? Because it seems like an odd take from someone who, you know, has a has grown up with a certain depiction of what the military is supposed to do in the very valorized manner. Something that's interesting that I found out about this Ukraine war is that um, we talk a lot about Ukraine winning the information operations uh, battle. But I think the reality is that Ukraine had, I'm not saying this right, obviously, <laughs> don't don't at me at Twitter, um, but uh, Ukraine uh, has the better product. So that's why they're winning the information war. And in some ways, that's never changed. The military has always been in some ways about marketing, you know, from the history of uh, recruitment posters to, um, you know, the old real films of World War Two and uh you know, what, what's the Capra movies, why we fight. It's always been about this kind of vague form of propaganda to get people to be part of the national product. And it goes back to stuff that, you know, uh, that Hans Morgenthau said about national morale and national culture. It's all bred into this kind of baked into this movie in Top Gun. 
where it's really about competition. It's not about victory. It's about the nature of competition. Because when you dive into the question of victory and war, outside of total war, there really is no victory. There really is no winner. Um, there's no war where we can all come out ahead and think about all the lessons and friends we built along the way. It doesn't work like that. But in this movie, it does. And that's why it helps with recruitment. Yeah, I want to uh, just follow on because I think Brandon uh, has really put his finger on something important there. You know, one thing that stands out to me is the difference between how the silent generation and the World War II generation. So the people who actually were around for uh, the Second World War in Korea, many of whom, of course, fought in it, participated in it, uh, were around for it, had a much less idealized version, a vision of the military than Top Gun portrays, right? So if you go back and you think about, the, um, you know, F Troop, or if you think about uh, just any depiction of the U.S. military in 1960s sitcoms, right, Sergeant Bilko, uh, like this was, you know, can you imagine this stuff being put out today? You'd be pilloried. You know, Nancy Pelosi would denounce you as anti-American if you, you know, showed just like ordinary graft taking place in the U.S. military. Well, that was prime time stuff in the middle of, you know, the American century, and everybody agreed on it. And, you know, that was people producing things for the market, um, and you Obviously, they had a lot of surplus military uniforms and things, but that was just how people assumed. Um, you know, the product placement back before Vietnam and before the draft ended uh, was a lot less sentimental. And, you know, that middle has kind of dropped out uh, from time to time for professional purposes, because I actually find a lot of the contemporary pop culture around the military to be un almost unwatchable. Um, I will watch things like NCIS or uh, the show about SEALs and all the other stuff on CBS and things. And you get two really different types of portrayals of the military now. You get the super shiny uh, you know, Top Gun style portrayal. Um, and then there's also this like weird, gritty, um, you know, special operations stuff. And sometimes they push it in a really traumatic way. And sometimes it's just, these are the things we have to do in order to protect the country. Um, but there's nothing about the majority of people in the military, right? There's never anything about the Air Force's weather service and the people who go to work in the Pentagon or in nondescript office buildings in Northern Virginia and just like crunch numbers. Um, there's never been a, a sitcom set in a nuclear uh, uh, ICBM silo, right? Imagine being trapped with four people for 24, 70 to 96 hours at a stretch. Um, you know, it would be like the office, but, uh, you know, even, even more uh, uh, apocalyptic. Uh, and I think that if you're trying to have product placement, you're doing that in part because recruitment since the end of the draft has been a huge issue for the military. And getting people to volunteer their time uh, really has changed how the military wants to be portrayed. The other part, of course, is that during Vietnam, um, as popular mobilization against the military really took on you know, huge, huge characters, right? Like think about the protests during summer 2020. Imagine those going on for years attracting a million people to come march on Washington for things like the November 69 uh, mobilization against the war. Uh, public opinion became a battlefield for the U.S. military. And it became something that for a long conflict, you had to have the public on your side, or at least indifferent to what you were doing. Uh, and so it's not just about product plays. And I think that he's actually underselling this here. This is actually kind of a theater of war. And Ukraine has certainly understood that in its relations with um, 
you know, uh, its allies. And there's a reason why Zelensky has cast himself as kind of a Che Guevara type figure. Um, I can only imagine that if like you woke up in Ukraine after a five-year coma, like your first question would be like, oh my God, the Russians invaded. Your second question would be, our John Stewart is now a revolutionary hero? What the hell is going on? Um, but the, you know, this actually, I think, gets back to how Top Gun portrays everything. And you know, the thing about the sports movie frame is that it actually lets us see who's able to keep score and what matters to the players. And even within the bounds of Top Gun, there's a scene in there. Uh, Brandon, when you mentioned that Tom Cruise is trying to figure out who his father is, where they blame the politicians for having cast his father as being kind of a traitor and like he died on the wrong side of the line and all this. And you know, you know, this is actually a weirdly conspiratorial moment in a film that's otherwise rah-rah America. I think that the significance there is that it's drawing a distinction between the government and the civilian policymakers. Uh, there's a couple of sliding uh, remarks about you know the people who in Washington who make those decisions, and the military and the true United States. That there's an American people separable from the politicians, um, and all the bad stuff can be blamed on the politicians. And if you really wanted to like be a super critical Noam Chomsky type, I'm not. You could say that this is like an incipient Dolchdos legenda, and like actually the military could have always won. Um, I think that's pushing it too far. That's just a trope in how Americans have come to, to understand Vietnam. Um, but it is also something that allows you to portray this as a redemptive narrative for the military and for Tom Cruise about getting over yourself, about learning to be part of a team and so on. Um, but also you're going to be judged by people in your circle, in your literal fraternity. Um, and civilians who know stuff about the military can help you, but they can't judge you. They ultimately can't uh, assess what you're doing. Only people who are in the arena are able to do that. And one of the reasons why this really stands out to me, of course, is that this is a movie about the Cold War, about the military, about a confrontation with some commie enemy uh, in which nuclear weapons just don't come up. Right. Uh, there's no nuclear weapons in this movie. There's no discussions of nuclear weapons in this movie. This is about really high tech conventional warfare uh, in a way that lets you think about nuclear combat or think about combat in a nuclear era without worrying about uh, the apocalypse. And of course, the other foil for this movie then um, are things like The Day After or things like Threads. Um, or even Red Dawn, which came out a couple of years before that, and which has in the background a giant nuclear conflict. Um, and, and I think, you know, I'm less of a Cold War kid than Brandon, um, but I, I was around just long enough to have a couple of nuclear nightmares as a kid. And you have to do a lot of work dramatically to get that stuff out of it. But that's also if you want people to join up to fight and to be the people who are first on the list in, in Moscow or Beijing, uh, you have to show this as something that's going to be a really kind of fun, interesting experience that's going to be exciting. Um, you know, maybe sometime somebody's going to make a, a movie just about the backseaters and how they feel about the pilots, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's telling that the only guy who dies is the, you know, poor schlub in the backseat. Poor Goose. Oh, geez. You had to go out with an attack on Goose after attacking my age on top of that. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head uh, in terms of the libertarianness of it, of this all. Because I wasn't really sure how we would approach that because there is a negative reading of this, obviously. This idea of the military, the jingoistic, uh, the rampant spending on aircraft carriers that are vulnerable to missiles. 
all that stuff is obvious. But what's not obvious, as Paul pointed out, is that this notion of uh, disrespect of authority, disrespect of the U.S. government, disrespect of the command, uh, the chain of command. And that comes out even more so in the second movie, which I would love to talk about in the future, that these themes are endemic in the Top Gun series. And I never really noticed them because it just seems like it's there to support the U.S. military. But is it really? Or is it more, I mean, it, it's obviously evolved as Tom Cruise is involved. It, it, now it's just more to support Tom Cruise. You know, it, it's not about the U.S. military now. It's about Tom Cruise is America. Uh, America fails without Tom Cruise. That's kind of what we built ourselves into. And I'm horrified at that, but that's where we are. Paul, you wrote in the document that we had where we were taking notes before this, uh, a question that I'm very curious about. And that I'd like for you to to ask and then give us your answer, because I, I, I want to see where it goes, honestly. You said, what is the relationship between demand and supply? Can you tease that out a little bit more for me and how it might apply to Top Gun? Yeah, absolutely. I think this uh, really is a, a great time to talk about this, too. So, uh, you know, we're talking about this from the point of view of the producers, of the creators, um, of the military who's lending real and valuable assistance uh, to the production of both of these movies. Uh, and, you know, that's there's one thing about thinking about well, how do you craft the story? What does the military want the story to be crafted like? How do you actually come up with this uh, in a way that's going to be a coherent narrative? Okay. Well, the other half of all of this stuff, um, of all popular culture, the reason why we talk about the popularity of it all is that this is a business aimed at delivering products that can sell. And like all big businesses, all big oligopolies, all big things that are interested. You do a lot of market segmentation. You deliver some products at a certain price point that will appeal to some markets. You do some things for prestige that allow you to reward people in your firm, you know, actors who want to get an Oscar and are willing to take a pay cut to get it. Um, but at the end of the day, you also have to start delivering Big, big popcorn movies. Um, you know, Top Gun, the, even the original one, right? Like it has to fill a thousand screens um, a, in a week. Uh, this was before we did the big simultaneous Batman 1989 releases, right? But it's got to play a lot of places. It's got to appeal to something close to the median American film goer. Um, you ideally want people to go see it multiple times. Uh, and you want to have you know, a halo effect that's going to get people to run out and buy uh, singles by Berlin um, or to be buying the soundtrack and uh, to be cruising down the expressway, listening to Highway to the Danger Zone, right? Uh, who has not done any of these things? Uh, and that means that you have to have a product that people want to have. I think that that's actually an interesting point to bring up here because when we talk about propaganda in closed societies, um, you know, Xi Jinping has just released his fourth book of the year. He is putting all academics to shame. Um, you know, we should all be writing this much. And it's going to be a bestseller. It is mandatory that it's going to be a bestseller. Uh, that's propaganda. Uh, we talked in the pre-chat about uh, Wolf Warrior, which is a series of films strongly supported by the Chinese state um, about Chinese special ops going off and, you know, taking down evil Westerners. That's propaganda. Um, and those are things in which the state is trying to put forward a very specific political line. 
And everything has to be vetted through. Um, and even when you have imported movies that come in, you know, the Soviet Union, um, they would reject movies from being shown that were imported from the West because even just in the background, they would show American workers as way too rich, right? Like they had their own televisions and their own phones. And like, if you showed this to the Soviets, they would have actually rioted because you're living 40 to a room in, in downtown Leningrad. But in an open society, Propaganda is a lot harder to do, right? Like the ultimate cudgel that DOD wields over films like this is withholding their support for a production if they don't like the script. That's a big step down from what China has been able to do over the last 10 or 15 years, which is not give you a license to show your movie at all, which is why Transformers infamously has that big scene about a Chinese official proclaiming that they will always protect Hong Kong in a movie where the American military is kind of the bad guy too. Um, all right. So all DOD can do is withhold support. And sometimes movies go forward without that support. Independence Day went forward without Hollywood support. It's all about the U.S. military. The U.S. military asked them to take Area 51 out of the script, and they said, we cannot possibly do that. Uh, and so they made that without assistance from the U.S. military. So you can get these things done. Um, but this is a propaganda of a very different sort, right? This is more nudging. This is more influencing. And I think that the ultimate... Uh, interesting point here is that in some sense, this is what the American public, or at least a big segment of it, was demanding. That doesn't mean it's going to be supplied, but it does mean that there was a market rel who was receptive to themes generally of this nature. Um, and there was also you know, a market even for um, literally taking exactly what the uh, Mujahideen were doing to the Soviet invaders and flipping it so that the Muj were all Americans and calling it Red Dawn, where you could get people to pack in the theaters to, to go see that uh, at almost exactly the same time. And I, I'm actually left at a little bit of a, of a crossroads here. Uh, I'm interested to see, Brandon, what you think about this, because in everything from video games to movies, uh, the American public obviously likes stories where they are the good guys um, and also like stories where often their government can be the bad guys. I was just watching Enemy of the State a couple of weeks ago. I'd never seen it. Uh, and like the, the message is very clear that you can only trust Gene Hackman. You can only trust the guy who uh, flees from NSA. Uh, and you can't trust the actual NSA. And, uh, you know, maybe, but uh, it is very weird that, you know, you can have these propagandistic vehicles that actually portray a somewhat cynical conspiratorial view of Washington and also a view of uh, militarism and patriotism as redemptive factors that can overcome enemies, domestic and foreign. You know what? That, that's an incredible statement. And uh, you've basically described stranger things. And it just it just demonstrates that these themes are endemic in American popular culture, because in one way, Stranger Things is a libertarian reading about the failure and overreach of government and that only private individuals, kids can solve these problems. And in some ways, that's what Top Gun is, too, that there are problems in this world. And the only people on that wall, you know, to go back to a few good men, are people like Tom Cruise who can solve these problems because they're so extraordinary. And that theme goes towards uh, Top Gun Maverick. So the uniqueness of the American experience, the uniqueness of the quality of the American hero really comes out in these movies and in this version of pop culture. And it's something I think we are probably, as a culture, going to be really uncomfortable to deal with. It's going to be a tough thing to really think about how these themes 
that you don't really even think about have really reached deeply into our psyche and that we're attracted to this idea of a hero like Will Smith in the Independence Day or top or Tom Cruise here who are a rogue, just like Han Solo. They're against the establishment, but the establishment is with them and the establishment is paying for them. And the establishment is making them continue to go. Even in Stranger Things, that theme is there. So how do you disconnect this idea of independence and freedom and the disconnect between the power of authority and the need for authority and the need for that support? Top Gun Maverick, uh, the budget was $170 million. I have no idea what their budget would have been without the U.S. government's support, but it probably would have been $500 million. So this idea that Maverick is a success because it brought in a billion over $170 million is only there because of the support of the U.S. government. But how much credit will the U.S. government get through all this? Uh, probably very little, but we'll see when recruitment numbers come out. I have to say, you know, as a former high school newspaper editor, um, you know, the reach of the U.S. government is incredible, right? Like one of our best, you know, take it to the bank. I mean, this was back in the era where you had to actually print high school newspapers, well, we had to sell advertising and, you know, God bless the recruiters, right? You know, consistently second or third largest advertiser in a high school newspaper. And if you're thinking about this uh, in, in a bigger historical re- way, to get back, Landry, to a question you asked a, a little bit ago, uh, when did all this change? Um, I really think that we are still, as a society, grappling with the fact that 1945 changed everything. And maybe when we went to date it in 1940, just before uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, but the shift to a permanent national security state um, really sits uneasily with democratic and representative institutions that were designed around the idea that there would not be a standing military establishment or that if there were one, it would be very, very small. Um, and culturally, the fact that almost every American directly or indirectly has a tie to the security state is inescapable. But politically, the idea that the dominant agency in the military in terms of policy making in foreign and security uh, areas would be the Department of Defense. Um, that, that was never supposed to be the case. And it really runs through a tension between founding ideals and deep ideas of patriotism um, and what we all know to be, I don't want to say the routine abuses, but certainly the inescapable abuses of any uh, agency that commands, you know, in the 1980s, what was it, Brandon, 4% of GDP? Now it's about 3 3 3.5%, um, and that's up a little bit. And uh, I, I think over the next 10 years, it's almost inescapable. The only thing we can get by a partisan agreement um, in D.C. on at the moment is to increase that a little bit more. Um, and uh, you know, it, it really is a huge uh, challenge. I will say, you know, the libertarian aspect of this comes through not only in the fact that the market is determining some aspect of what these stories can tell, it is actually an interplay between the government agencies supporting this and the audience that has to be sold this. Unlike China, we can't just you know bring people to the theater in droves. Um, but there's also just the fact that uh, you know Wolf Warrior is not going to have something in which an actual officer of the PLA or an entire cast of the PLA uh, the People's Liberation Army is uh, abusing power in a, in a huge and systematic way. Um, and yet, in almost every military inflicted uh, 
in, in uh, inflected uh, film that we've talked about today, you can just see like even in Independence Day, the Secretary of Defense is hiding the existence of aliens from pres from the president when the aliens arrive. Um, and that is an uncontroversial part of the movie that nobody in the audience is like, that would never happen. In fact, they're like, oh yeah, no, I can see that. That's totally what would happen. Dick Cheney would have 100% lied about that to George H.W. Bush. And it continues today with, uh, I haven't seen Moonfall, but I believe that's one of the plots. But uh, my, my other favorite recent movie, uh, Geostorm, is also one of these ideas that the U.S. government has has an entire like platform to control the weather and it goes bad and uh, only one man can stop it. These are persistent themes. Uh, you know, the hero's journey is a persistent theme. The hero of this movie, the winner of this movie is obviously uh, Tom Cruise. It's not the U.S. government. Uh, it might have won through recruitment, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens uh, with the second movie and the pandemic because recruitment has really hit. Uh, has the pandemic has really hit recruitment hard? I read an article the other day; they were complaining we couldn't get the high schools for two years, and it's kind of like, well, should you have really been in high schools? You know, uh, I mean, is that really your complaint? Uh, but okay, uh, we'll see what happens with the next movie. But really, the winner is the hero. The winner is Tom Cruise. He's just an amalgamation of, you know, Han Solo, you know, with Goose being Chewbacca. And, you know, these themes continue and they're, they're universal across U.S. popular culture. And it tells us something about ourselves. It tells us something about who we are as individualistic, as competitive, as in some ways jovial, joking, lazy, Lotharios, you know, all these things are right there. And I think that's one of the most interesting things and entertaining things about these series of movies is that it, it really is this idealized version of the American character that isn't reality, but it's the reality we choose to believe. The interesting thing about this is that this is a movie about air-to-air -air combat. And one of the things that we've learned uh, in Ukraine, um, one of the things that we've learned in both Iraqs and Afghanistan and so forth, is air-to-air -air combat is not a huge part of what even fighter jets do, right? Um, the F-35 is really is supposed to take on the close air support role that's bombing things from the sky. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of discussion about the kinds of munitions you're going to have on there. Uh but really, I think what we're learning in Ukraine in particular is just the importance of good old artillery and good old, um, you know, surface to air missiles, air defense systems. Um, and nobody wants to see uh, Top Gun 3, Tom Cruise versus a man pad, a uh, man portable air defense system, right? Like you've got this amazing, uh, you know, vehicle <laughs> and all that. And like Tom Cruise goes out there and then he's shot down by some guy with a stolen singer. Oh man, that would suck, right? Like the movie's five minutes long, and what we've learned is that asymmetrical warfare is super important. Uh, and like uh, in, in my readings of like the air battle over North Vietnam, uh, the battle was not really between guys and fighters shooting guys and fighters. The battle was between guys and bombers being shot down by guys on the ground. Uh, and so, you know, when we're talking about the kinds of metrics and the kinds of ways, like, you know, Top Gun is a, is a morality tale. It doesn't really have a lot to do with how the military fights, but it has a lot to do with how the military wants you to believe that you will take part, right? Um, you know, Brandon, what's the tooth to tail on, uh, you know, maintaining an F-14? We don't have any anymore, but, uh, you know, choose your F-series versus actually flying it. Uh, you got one guy in the cockpit and then 50 guys, you know, the one guy who's in charge of cleaning the 
the gaskets after every flight. I mean, that is the reality of what you will be doing. And maybe they, that's actually a pretty good job, right? Like in terms of quality of life, but that's what you'll actually be doing. Uh, <laughs> and it is, it is just really interesting in terms of what you have to do to sell the military. You have to make it all about combat, all about valor, all about all the things that are traditional. You know, you could have somebody writing this up for the French royal court in the 14th century and he would have told pretty much the same story um you just replace all of the air-to-air combat with jousting um but in terms of real military stuff man like what you talk about is how expensive is this missile versus how expensive is that plane and how many missiles do we got to shoot down uh, do we got to use to shoot that down and uh uh, my guess is is that we're finding out in Ukraine that uh, good intel and uh, good integrated air defense system is a lot more important than a really bold, courageous uh, fighter pilot. That's the interesting thing, right? It's Modern warfare is about combined arms. It's about all working together. And in doing preparation for this podcast, I have seen quite a few people wonder, what do the backseaters do? What does Goose do all day? And it's like, that's not my question. Obviously, it's, you know... It's counter air warfare, it's radar, it's weapons protection and weapons systems management. But people are just like, it's all Tom Cruise. And that's not the story. As Paul says, the story is the entire ecosystem and city that an aircraft carrier is to support these uh, these sorties, these, these, these plane runs that uh, require a village literally to maintain. And that's a tough story. That's a tough story to get people to get behind and to use for recruitment. Speaking of stories that we want to get behind, I think it's a great way to to end on because it's sort of a, a zero sum question that that we can sort of we'll, we'll tie together a lot of the things that we've talked about today, which is do either of you think that you can have a movie or a TV show or a piece of media that celebrates the military and doesn't propagandize is that possible to you would it have to focus on individual service members or is it possible to do that on an institutional level without propagandizing is is that even possible or is supporting an institution in and of itself propaganda I, I would one avoid the word propaganda in this context it would be more about promotion and there is a right way to do it and i think both top gun and top gun maverick are great examples of progressive notions of representation you know in top gun you have charlie who's based on christine fox who i think i ran across in real life who's a very famous uh, DOD, you know, she made DASD level, U.S. acting this, U.S. acting that. She was a very important person in the military industrial complex. And um, there was even the kind of the question Kelly McGinnis was asking about her, um, you know, the, the pantyhose with the run in the back, like, is that too sexy for this person? And they even asked a person and, and uh, Christine Fox was kind of like, eh, I, I might wear that. You know, it's, it's these simple forms of representation. That are very interesting. I forget the guy. There is a black guy in the first movie, but it's even more so in the second movie, which some pundits have said that the 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 second movie, Maverick, is a, a version of a of a I don't know what you would call it, but it's anti woke. When in reality, my whole reading of this entire series is very much woke, even though there is a white hero. 
that white hero is supported by an entire complex of people, including Kelly McGinnis, who are central to his uh, success in this story. Yeah, just to jump on Brandon's point about wokeness, right? Like in the traditional World War II uh, movie, what you know, put that front and center, right? Like that was the New Deal war. Um, and so you'd have, you know, the all-American squad of Simpson and Alcalde and, you know, Bernstein and, you know, Tex, always a guy named Tex. Uh, uh, you, you, know, you know, the only thing is, of course, the Second World War, you know, they were not integrated by race. Um, you know, Captain America in the Second World War, the Marvel made sure that his squad was integrated, but Captain America fought in a segregated army, right? He was a captain in an apartheid army. Korean War, though, right? Like, and you even watch something like MASH, and you know, even there, um, with some, you know, gender problems, uh, you know, it, it's obvious, right? Like, traditional military films in the U.S. context have always actually been about the integration of the U.S. Um, that is actually one of the central projects of the U.S. military. Um, and it is partly practical reasons because you're trying to recruit whoever you can recruit. Um, and also just partly that is what the military wants to have as an integrated fighting force. And that is one of the things that the military, unlike some of its more reactionary defenders, is has always been very clear about. Um, and so, you know, the question is, how would you promote an institution like that without falling prey to some of these things? And I actually, I think that if you told a story that would look something more like Apollo 13, um, the story of an organization adapting and learning and overcoming challenges. So, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and induce market demand for this, uh, one of the things I would have would be, you know, we're going to tell the story of the guys who... Uh, mastered the wild weasel mission in Vietnam. Um, and this is the mission where you go in and you are flying your F-4 Phantom against air defenses. Um, and you are actually going to fly into the lion's mouth and you are going to try to defang that. Well, that is a huge organization and it takes guys who know science, it takes guys who know tech, it takes guys who know tactics, it takes guys who have you know, frankly, balls of steel uh, to actually do these things, but you have to have them all working together. And that is the opposite of, you know, the kind of um, special operations, glamorizing Navy SEAL, tip of the uh, spear sort of thing that you have coming out of Hollywood now, which is all about a guy in a ghillie suit walking around um, and you're taking somebody out with one shot. Like, yeah, okay, well, that is the tip of a very long steel, a very long spear that includes the guys who, you know, specifically modified your gear to do that. And I think that the way that you'd want to think about war and the military complex now um, to promote this in a, a semi-responsible but also much more intelligible way would be to tell that as an organizational story of challenge, learning, and adaptation. Um, and that would be one that would just kind of demote the status of the war fighters. Um, but like, you know, again, look, warfighters, uh, if you're listening, and I'm sure some of you guys are like, I can't do what you can do. And also, I know that if you guys have HIMARS, and if you guys have electronic intelligence telling you to, you know, where to point those rockets, your job gets a lot easier. Um, and, and that is really the story of how warfare is done nowadays. Um, but the, that would be my uh, suggestion to actually orient it around the entire organization and uh, to foreground a lot of the things that Top Gun puts in the background. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. 
you can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time.